0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, Today, we're going to finish our uh, final week of our series that we've called Growing Pains. And we are working through the Bible week by week. And so we are in, I think this is the seventh week so far, working through uh, the Bible. So we're still in the Old Testament, still in sort of this phase where the Israelites are getting into Israel. They have conquered the promised land. They're kind of settling in to their new home. And so, so far, this title of the series Growing Pains hasn't really fit, I don't think, so far, but today it's really going to fit. Today the focus of Growing Pains is really going to come into play as we see sort of the first 300 years or so after they settle into their own country. There's a lot of Growing Pains and really what we're going to see today, there's a lot of ups and downs. So today's going to be a story of up and down, up and down, or really down and up, down and up is sort of the the way that we're going to see it. So today we're going to be in the book of Judges, which is in the Old Testament, and we are going to see how the nation of Israel went up and down, up and down, up and down, both spiritually and societally, in every way possible, in every way imaginable. It was like good times, bad times, good times, bad times. Uh, and so we will see how the world we live in is the exact same way and what part we play in that process and how we can maybe avert some of the issues that we will see that happened in the book of Judges. So I want to start out with sort of a really sad summary. Uh, so the first half of the message is going to be a big, big fat downer, just to give you a heads up on that. And then we will pick everything up at the second half. But we're going to kind of talk about the main problem facing the people in the book of Judges and the same problems that we're facing now. And then we'll get to the solutions and how we can be a part of of that, So let's start out with the, really a sad summary of God's people in Judges chapter 2, and this is verses uh, 10 through 15. So Judges two ten through 15, just a sad summary, a uh, state of affairs of God's people, and here's what it says. After that generation died, so after Joshua and his generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtaroth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. I told you it was going to be a downer at the beginning. I did not lie. What we see here in this series of verses is a very simple downward progression or a regression, if you will. And there's a three-step process that we'll talk about just for a second here to get things kicked off. So it says, first, they did not acknowledge God. Then they did not remember God, the things he had done, and then they totally abandoned him. You see how there's a progression there, a regression? So first they did not acknowledge God. They had maybe a general awareness of God, like even their parents and grandparents worshipped and served God. So they knew about him, but they did not acknowledge him. So, so they knew he was there. It's almost like if someone walks into the room and you know that they're, you know they've walked into the room, but you don't say hello to them okay? You're aware of them being in the room, but you have chosen not to acknowledge them. That is the first step that Israel does here in their regression in this up and down period of their history. But then it led to them not remembering. And it, I don't, again, I don't think a generation or two after Joshua, they just forgot. It's not like they just didn't remember. It's not short-term amnesia in this generation. It's that they chose to forget. They chose to forget. So all of the stories of history that their parents and grandparents told and all the things they grew up with about the Red Sea parting for your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, you know, like, oh, you know, that's, that's old-timey, folksy stuff. We don't really need that anymore. They did not acknowledge, they did not remember, and then they totally abandoned God. There's a finality to that. There's sort of a, okay, this is the end of the road here. We have done all we can to show God we're not interested We don't really have time for this. We've got other things we're concerned about. My life is too full. So they did that. The problem is we were created to worship. So when they abandoned God, they had to replace him with something. They had to. There's no option. You cannot worship nothing, if that makes any sense. I hope I said that right. You don't have the option to worship nothing. You always worship something. So they replaced God. What they did is they went from one God to two gods. They doubled their gods. And they, you know, really went down the effectiveness of those gods, but you know, it's neither here nor there. So they went to the gods that are listed: are Baal and Asherah, and they sort of worked together in ancient Canaanite history. Baal is like the number one known god; he's all over the Old Testament. He's even he's written in other um, Canaanite literature too. He's a major god. So the things that he would do is he would prevent storms, uh, he would control the seas, and he would make sure there was a plentiful harvest. So now, if you are an agricultural society, that's the kind of stuff that you want. So it makes sense if Baal, the god of these Canaanite people that we've come into now, we've moved into their neighborhood, so we're going to adopt their gods, that's a good one to worship. He's going to prevent storms. He's going to give a bountiful harvest. He's going to control the seas. That's a good thing. And then Asherah is known as mainly a fertility goddess, so they would... You'll see later in Judges that there are these things called Asherah poles, so they could have been in the shape of like um, trees. Oh, I couldn't think of the word tree for a second. Wow, that was crazy. (laughs) Because of fertility, so both in the land and with people, so there were all sorts of devious sexual practices happening in the name of this god. These two gods work hand in hand, and that's what Israel chose to do. Again, they they didn't acknowledge God they failed to remember him and then they abandoned him and replaced him with these other gods and as we saw that didn't bring good things to them it brought judgment it brought they said it says they were in great distress So the question is, how did Israel go from conquering this new land through the power of God to now abandoning him to where now he is actively fighting against them? How did that happen in one or two generations? How in the world did they regress that far that fast? And I think the key in this regression is the middle part, the second step, that not remembering, the forgetting, the intentional unremembering of what they know. We see this written later on, let's read, we sang this this morning, Uh, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5, show us the importance of this idea. So the psalmist writes this, "'Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases.'" Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. How did Israel go from just not acknowledging God's there and I understand he's there, but it's not an important thing to me to I've abandoned and replaced him. How did that happen? So fast, so so quickly. It happened because they forgot they failed to remember what he had done so here, here's here's how it is in, in the moment in your everyday life it's easy to sort of not acknowledge God right it's easy to just kind of live life and do your thing and God's sort of in the periphery sometimes we, we know he's there but we don't acknowledge always that he's there He's sort of maybe this section of the pie chart of your life. And, you know, on Sundays, obviously, he's very important. Obviously, he's a big deal because I'm going to carve out some of my day to go, you know, listen about him and worship him and with other people that love him, that sort of thing, right? But then the other six days of the week, it's, it's easy. It's, it's easy to not acknowledge him. However, the problem here is that as Israel continued to do that day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, then they also added to that they failed to remember what he had done. So in the present, I'm not acknowledging his presence in my life. And I'm also not remembering the great things he had done, which makes for a pretty terrible future. If my present is not focused on God and my past is not focused on him, my future certainly will not be focused on him. And that's where Israel found themselves, a total abandonment of God. Israel became too busy for God. They became too comfortable for him. They became too complacent, too distracted in their present situation. And when it came to the stories that they told about their past, those became fewer and fewer and less in there about what God did, more about what they maybe did. Israel became self-absorbed, self-sufficient. They didn't need their ancestors' God anymore. We've got our land. We're settled. Things are great. Times are awesome. So we don't really need this other figure bossing us around or telling us what to do. We don't need him to lead us anymore. We're planted. We're not going anywhere. We don't have to go anywhere so he doesn't have to lead us anywhere so they don't remember him and they paid a price for it in their future and, and we'll see how that how it does go up and down but first what i want to do is this is compare it to our current culture unfortunately what i've just described is exactly how i could describe our modern culture we live in the book of judges chapter 2 we are in that moment that is where you live that is where i live that is where we live we are exactly where israel was we are a nation and a culture in the West, in America, that is built on God, but we are starting to not acknowledge that as much in our culture. Now, again, in some ways, I'm preaching to the choir, and that's the point. We'll get to why that's important in a second. So I'm not saying, oh, you need to acknowledge God more. Maybe you are, right? Maybe that, And that's the point. We are maybe the ones who can turn the tide in the culture. But let me first again address the issue that is probably pretty obvious and apparent to us as we look around the outward culture. Our culture does not acknowledge God. Our culture is becoming too busy for God. We're becoming too distracted for God. We become too comfortable. We become too complacent. We become too self-absorbed. We don't have a need for God anymore. That's where our culture is. Our culture's in the process of abandoning God. So it's the remembering thing that our culture is also starting to get away from or really go toward is not remembering God. We're literally rewriting history books to take out any sort of idea or person of faith or of character or of virtue. We're we're er trying to erase these people, imperfect though they were, from our history. That is what our culture is doing. We are repeating Judges chapter 2. Our self-sufficiency in our culture has pushed us past the need for our ancestors' simple God. He's, you, you, my parents' God, my grandparents, it's too simple. It's, too, it's too, too small. It's outdated. It's old-fashioned. I don't need those beliefs anymore. We've moved past that. We've progressed past that. We've evolved past the need for that kind of God. And what we're doing is we're honestly becoming our own God. Our culture is replacing itself in the place of God. And you see that even with, the, even with the gods that Israel replaced, Baal and Asherah, our culture is doing the same things, replacing the God of our ancestors with the same types of things. So even with Baal, he could control the weather. I don't know if you know this or not, but... Uh, in China and also in the United Arab Emirates, there is this technology they've been testing for a couple years now where they're trying to inject certain chemicals in certain clouds to force them to rain. So, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying our culture is going to turn what could be a great thing into a god. I I don't need God to bring rain. We can inject the cloud with iodine and dry ice and it'll rain in the desert if we need it to. So again, it's not a bad thing, but even good things can become God things if we're not careful. And that's what our culture tends to do. There, here's the line. The culture runs as far past that line as fast as it can for as far as it will go. That's the issue that we face in our modern culture. We genetically, we genetically engineer food. We don't need God to do, provide anymore. We can provide for ourselves. And just like with Asherah, our culture is sexually obsessed Everything, everything is infused with that. It's like, wait, this is like, this is like a show for eight-year-olds. I don't care. It's going to have all this stuff in there that it, they don't really need to have, right? Uh, and we're a sexually confused culture, right? Part of the obsession has caused such confusion that anyone can be anything at any time, and, and I'm not going to get into that. I've already gotten into it far enough right now, right? you guys just saying that. But that's where our culture is. Our culture is we are reliving in our Current day 2022, we are reliving Judges chapter 2. And the problem is, the result will be the same. So, God withstood, actively withstood his own people in Judges 2. He fought against them. I'm telling you, I'm not a prophet, I'm not a doomsday guy, and I feel like it right now today. I'm just saying, God hasn't changed. So as we repeat the same thing that we're reading about in Judges, God will actively come against this country, this culture, right? As much as he loves America, like he loves himself more, you know? It's like he's a jealous God, right? And so that's, that's where that comes down to. We find ourselves today where Israel did, and the future may not be so great if we continue down that path as a culture. But here's the good news. The good news is the book of Judges has the name Judges because whenever Israel would find itself downward, they would eventually get so down in the dumps, they would be so oppressed for so long, they would cry out to God for help. And guess what? He would help them. He would raise up people called Judges to basically overthrow the oppressive government that was over them or the people that were oppressing them, he would they would sort of have this spiritual renewal revival that would come about for a period of years. He would raise them up so after the down would come the up. So what I want to do just for a couple minutes here is tell the stories of three different judges um, and two of, the first one is like one of my favorite but lesser-known Old Testament stories of all time. It is awesome, okay? The second one and third one, or they're okay too, but the first one is awesome. So the uh, first judge here in Judges chapter 3 is called Ehud. His name is Ehud. And uh, so Israel had been handed over to Moab for 18 years. So we talked about Ruth last week. She's from Moab. So there's a history here. So Moab is now sort of oppressing God's people, and they have a king called Eglon. And the Bible, now the Bible says this, it's not me, it's the Bible, says Eglon was very fat, okay? Again, that's not me, I'm not fat shaming Eglon, the Holy Spirit did, all right? Uh, So Eglon was very fat. So Ehud the judge, he goes with a few people and they pay tribute to to the king, King Eglon, that's what they would do, is they're the oppressed people, you owe me money, you owe me taxes, you know, whatever, so they went and paid their taxes to him. So Ehud, the judge, says he had about a foot-long dagger, a two-sided dagger he had, but he was carrying, you know, concealed carry, this foot-long dagger with him, and he had a plan. So they go, and they pay their dues to the king, and they they go, they start turning back home, and all of a sudden, Ehud turns around, and he goes back to the king and says, hey, king, I've got a super secret to tell you, top secret information for your ears only. And so King Eglon says, okay, that's cool, that's fine, come on in. And so they, he's up in his upper private chamber, really on the roof of his house, little private um, residence there. He has all of his guards and all of his servants leave the room because this is top secret information, okay? So when they're there together, uh, Ehud says, okay, I've got to get really close to tell you the secret, like right in your ear. So he takes the dagger and he stabs Ehud in the gut. Here's the reason him being fat was important to the story. It says he was so fat, in fact, that his fat sucked in the whole dagger into his body, and it came out the other side, okay? And so he's kind of there, nearly dead, and Ehud's like, oh, this is more awkward than I thought it was going to (laughs) be. So what he does, Ehud, he locks the door from the inside and goes out a separate exit. So, So the king is there basically dying, bleeding out to death, And no one's there to help him. So his servants are outside, downstairs, like, man, he's been up there. They've been up there for a long time. So they kind of go upstairs, and they, they see the doors locked, so they assume he's in the bathroom. They don't want to embarrass their king, so they wait for a while, and they wait for a while. And they're like, okay, he's been in there for a really long time. Like, even for this guy, this is a long time. So they bark through the door, and they see him there dead On the ground. So Ehud then delivered, after that, a great battle ensued, and God gave them a victory. And after that, there is 80 years of peace. I think that's a pretty cool story, right? I just think that's a really neat story. So here's the problem 80 years of peace, year 81, what does Israel do? The same thing they did in Judges chapter 2. They fail to remember God's goodness, they don't acknowledge Him, and they abandon Him for these false gods. So they go into this downward spiral again. But after that period of time, God raises up another judge. And this time, it's a lady. Yay! Her name is Deborah. And she's awesome. She's the only female judge. And we'll talk about why that's important a little bit later. So Deborah also has an assistant, Barak. And they, she basically gets this download from God about this battle plan on how to defeat the opposing army of the Canaanites. And so she and Barak, they get together and they form this plan, and they go and they watch this thing uh, happen. And so what happens is the Israelite army just destroys the Canaanite army, except for their top general. Somehow he escapes. He was in a chariot. He escapes on foot and runs basically to the neighboring town. He finds a tent of someone he's somewhat familiar with and goes in to hide there because he knows that Barak's going to come looking for him. He's going to do a head count, a body count. There's one guy left. I'm going to go find him. He knows he's going to try to be chased down. So he finds a tent of someone that he thinks is friendly. She gives him some milk to drink, and he takes a little nap. But that's where the problem ensues. She's not as loyal to him as he thought because she kills him in the tent. If you want to read how she kills him, you can read it later on. Uh, it's in Judges chapter 5, or four, chapter 4. Um, so anyway so she kills this guy in the tent so then when barrett comes looking he's have you seen the general yeah i've seen him come on my in my tent and there he is dead in the tent so god brings a great victory through deborah through her her you know insight her foresight and then they have peace for 40 more years but guess what happens year 41 comes around as it always does right And now we go into another downward slope the people fail to acknowledge god they fail to uh, remember god and then they abandon him and replace him again and again and again so then what god does this is judges chapter 6 raises up another judge named gideon and he's one of the more famous ones you may be more familiar uh, with his story so the midianites have now been oppressing israel for seven years but god raises up gideon to free them from midian like how that rhymes god is so cool about how he does this So through a combination of faith and strategy and courage, Gideon uh, has this huge army. The most famous story of Gideon is he has a huge army of 32,000 troops. And God says, you got too many guys in your army. And Gideon's like, wait, how is that ever a problem? Too many men, too many soldiers? He's like, yeah, the problem is if you go and fight this battle you're about to fight, you will take the credit for it. Because your army was bigger, more powerful, we were better trained, they're weak, you know, they're nothing. Look at us, you're going to beat your chest and take the credit, and that's not what's going to happen. So through a series of different actions, God whittles the army down from 32,000 to 300. Now that's quite a, you know, loss there. So with 300 men, Gideon and his army go, and they still win the battle they're about to face with only 300 men. They don't, they don't lose a single man in this battle because when they basically he uses his his strategery he takes the 300 men splits them up into three groups to surround an army at midnight that are there asleep they blow their horns and shout really loud at midnight it must be new year's eve i don't know what day it was it doesn't say but they blow their horns and they shout and the men who are asleep they wake up and of course they're they're you know what's going on and they start fighting each other they kill themselves in battle so they didn't didn't lose a single man Because God gave him the victory. So, at various times, God would raise up these judges to free his people from oppression and to remind them once again, he's the same God that was the same God of their ancestor that they have abandoned. Okay? Here's what I believe. I believe that God wants to raise up judges again today in our modern culture. I believe God wants to raise up people who are faithful and willing people who will remember him when the culture has forgotten and abandoned and replaced him, people who will lead, people who will fight for righteousness. And I believe that God is calling people like you and people like me to wake up our culture. I believe we in this room can be modern day judges like we saw in the Old Testament. I believe God wants us to do that. Now, you might hear that, and you, that, that, that might be shocking to you. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, 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 no. I, I don't have the right credentials for that, and I'm not prepared for that, and I don't think I can do that. Maybe it's overwhelming to you. That's a big responsibility, Stephen. Like, do you realize what you're asking of me? Do you realize what you're required? Do you realize what that means? Like, it sounds cute in a sermon, but do you know, like, what that means in my life? Maybe you hear that, and you feel unprepared or unqualified to do that. Well, I can't be a judge for the Lord? What does that even mean? So let's look back over the judges that we just talked about and and look at them a little more personally for a second and see some characteristics about them that I think might help you to ease into this idea. This, This idea of saving the culture is not just for somebody else to try and do. If we don't do it, who's going to do it? If we who do remember God, do acknowledge God, won't do it, then the culture is already gone. If we won't stand up and fight for what is true and real, then no one else will. We are the last great hope of the world, is the church, is the people who make up the church. So let's look at these judges again and see how important it is that we are a part of the culture. And I want to look at really three. Three things, but they're quick. Three things about the judges that will help us to see how we can be like them, okay? The main idea is that they all exemplified grace. They were all part of God's gracious plan. So the first thing about these judges is that they were simply an extension of God's grace. The judges were an extension of God's grace. What I mean by that is this. Israel has forgotten God. They've not acknowledged him. They've abandoned him and replaced him, okay? So he could just let them die off. He could just let them do what you're going to do. It's going to be awful. I'm going to oppose you myself, and it's going to be nasty. He could have done that. He has every right to do that, yet he raised judges up as an extension of his grace. These people are, uh, they do not deserve, they are undeserving of my grace, yet that's kind of what grace is. You don't deserve the goodness of God, but he gives it to you anyway. So these judges being raised up were an extension of God's grace. And I believe in the same way you and I can be extensions of God's grace in our modern culture today. I believe that we can, you can maybe change someone's mind before they make a huge mistake with their life. You can do that. You have the kind of influence with someone in your life. that You can speak into their life and say, wait, no, no, no. Do you know what you're about to do? Do you know the mistake that you're about to make? Abort mission turn, do something else, do anything of what you're about to do. You can do that. It's a very simple thing, but it's a powerful thing, and you can do that. You can encourage someone before they maybe even harm themselves. You can bring someone maybe back to God, back to faith. You can affect change in the culture by starting small right where you live. Your neighborhood, your family, right? It doesn't have to be. I'm going to change the world. Let's well, let's just maybe start a little more reasonable here. Let's start right where you live, your little corner of the world, and then we'll expand from there. We see that in the life of Gideon. That's the first thing that Gideon did as a judge. The first false uh, God, you know, monument that he tore down was at his father's house. He didn't say, "I'm going to tear down every false idol in the whole country." He he did that, but he started right at home, right at my father's house. That's the first false God altar that he tore down was at his father's house. It starts small and it goes from there. So the question is, the challenge is, will we be an extension of God's grace in our culture? Will we stand up and try to make a difference right where we live? The judges were also examples of God's grace. And this is a big one maybe for us who are struggling with this idea of how I can make a difference and I'm not qualified and I can't, I can't do it and you don't know me, Stephen, and it sounds great, but God can't use someone like me. Well, the judges themselves were examples of God's grace. So what we see is that God used all kinds of people to be judges. They were all different. They were all unique. In fact, we already talked about one of them, Deborah, being unique as a woman was a leader, which was very uncommon in that day. Extremely uncommon. And I'm not just saying that. Like Deborah even says that. So when her and Barak are making this battle plan, she tells Barak, go ahead and go and lead the troops and battle. And he says, why don't you come with? We don't know if she actually fought in the battle or if she was just kind of overseeing the battle or or what she was doing. But he invited her to come along to join them in this neighboring city where the battle was going to take place. And what does she tell him? She says, Well, I would, but the problem is if a woman is responsible for winning the battle, you're not going to get any glory for this victory. I didn't say it. She said it herself. She knew this is not the way things normally go. God doesn't normally use people like me that sound you ever said that before god doesn't normally use people like me he uses somebody he uses steven right he uses somebody else he uses someone who's more gifted or better looking or with more money or more connections he uses paul he doesn't use people like me no, no no god uses who he uses all sorts of people deborah didn't allow her lack of position to keep her from being used by god and neither should we God also used someone like Gideon who was kind of a weak-kneed excuse maker. Like when, when, God, when God comes to him, he's, the angel says, you mighty man of valor, you great warrior. And he's like, is there somebody else that you're talking to? I'm, I don't see anybody else, but I'm not sure, Right? So, normal guy, he's threshing wheat, hiding it from the Midianites. And so here, let me read that story to you. This is Judges chapter 6, verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Gideon, and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Now, does that sound like a mighty warrior to you? Hmm. Does that sound like a mighty man of faith to you? No, it sounds like me, right? Well, what about this, God? And why did this happen, God? And I don't know why this is going on, right? It doesn't sound like a confident guy at all. And even what does he do here? He even tries to blame God for where they find themselves. He says, the Lord has abandoned us. And God's like, well, wait, 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 just a second. There's a step before that where you abandoned me first. You know, it's kind of like, I, I, I don't quit, you're fired. It's sort of that kind of thing, right? So that, that's where we find ourselves. Let's move on. It says, then the Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Sounds pretty good, right? But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my entire family. So Gideon says, the first thing out of his mouth is, but. But, I can't. How can I? Well, God's already said, I'm sending you. So he didn't say, you go ahead and do this and it'll be fine. I'll, I'll just be over here watching. No, no, no. I am sending you. But he still has this excuse mentality. And then it continues on. The Lord said to him, I will be with you and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Here we go again. Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. So, God sends an angel to Gideon. Uh, God says, I am sending you, I am going with you. And Gideon still needs another sign. Like, how much more does he need? How much more convincing does Gideon need? Apparently, a lot. Okay, but as hard as we might be on Gideon, we can be the same way. God says, I'm sending you. Well, how am I going to do that, God? I don't know what to do. I'm going to go with you. Oh, I don't feel like I'm alone, and it's just terrible. It's like, didn't you just hear what I said? I am sending you. I'm going with you, and we still freak out, right? We still are fallen, broken people that God still uses despite our questions, despite our concerns, despite our objections, despite our excuses and reasons why I can't, and I'm not sure. It's like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. God says, I am calling you. I'm sending you. I'm going to go with you. It's going to be fine. So we're just like Gideon in that way. Now, you might say this, though. Here's one more thing. You might say, well, Stephen, I've I've got a past. It's a checkered past, and you know, I've got my own issues, my own problems. I deal with all kinds of sin, and I just don't have things figured out. God's not going to use me. I'm disqualified from that, right? Like, now, you're not getting off the hook that easy, okay? No. There's one judge we haven't mentioned yet, maybe the most famous of all, and that's Samson. If you want to find someone who would maybe have been disqualified from God using him, it's Samson. Samson had big issues, mega issues, major issues, Right? Uh, Samson and that's why he's an example of God's grace so Samson was selfish I want what I want he was impulsive I want what I want and I want it right now and I don't care what the cost is I don't care how terrible it's going to be I'm so short-sighted and so self-indulgent I just want everything I want and I want it now he's a child baby. he's a man baby is what Samson is right Samson was unwise Even people tried to warn him, this is a bad idea. I don't care. I want it, and I want it now. That's unwise. He wouldn't listen to reason. He wouldn't think things through. Even if he'd been burned before in a similar situation, he still went for it. He's a womanizer. It didn't work out for him too well, and then in the end, it really cost him big time at the end, right? He's unwise. He's proud. He's a preening peacock. Look at me. Look at my muscles. I'm so strong and healthy. Look, you know, I can throw gates across... I don't know why he turned from Arnold to Russian right there, but he did. I watched too many Olympics has gotten my things all together, but yeah, he did. He went, from, he went from Arnold to Russian really fast anyway. I throw a gate across bridge. It's awesome. Look at me. I'm so strong. Yeah, so, so here's the deal. In the end, Samson self-destructed, Okay. In the end, after all this, after months and months and years and years of all of these terrible ways of living, awful decisions, uh, all about him, he eventually self-destructed, right? And so what that did is it limited his impact. His calling was to wipe out the Philistines altogether, And the problem was when he, at the end of his life, he had to basically do a kamikaze mission. He pulled these pillars on top of himself, he died, and he killed a bunch of Philistines. The sad part is he killed more Philistines in that moment of his death than he had his entire life, and there's still tons of them left, right? So, untapped potential, limited impact, and wasted opportunity. So, in the end, yes, he imploded and self-destructed, however... All along the way, month after month, year after year, mistake after mistake, sin after sin, God still used him for his purposes. In the midst of his imperfection, God didn't say, oh, you're disqualified, you screwed up one too many times. No, right? It was actually literally his death that ended his story. If somehow he was able to escape without having eyes and he was able, God probably still would have used him again, right? That's an example of God's grace he's not looking for perfect people. If he were, nothing would ever get done. Because all he's got to work with is people like me, people like you. I'm sorry you're not perfect. Spoiler alert, right? I uh, hate to break it to you, but that, that's all God has. So our imperfections aren't disqualifications. L- let's learn from Samson, though. Like Paul, in his letters, he says, I die daily. So we want to, we want to allow God to still work on us, Right? We want to still grow in, in grace, through grace, by grace, Right, in grace, but we don't want to get so busy doing God's work that we stop being God's work either. That's the danger we want to avoid with Samson. However, even as God uses us despite our imperfections, we are then an example of God's grace. He's going to use imperfect people every time to fulfill his perfect purposes. That's you and me. Here's the last thing the best part about the judges is that they were also a version of what i'm going to call early grace the judges were an example of early grace so these judges as mighty as they were as great as they were as strong as they were as brave as they were they just brought temporary relief 80 years of peace 40 years of peace 12 years of peace and then here we go again right they brought limited freedom they brought measured hope but they were only a precursor to a judge who would come, who would do all of these things forever and perfectly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes this, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Christ is the ultimate judge. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Jesus is our great judge. Jesus rules completely and righteously. Jesus Jesus saves his people for all of time. Not a limited time, not in a limited way, but for good for all of time no power can stand against him no evil can conquer him he is king of kings he is lord of lords and he is judge of judges so these judges from the book of judges were just an early grace sort of this precursor to one who would come who would right every wrong and do everything perfectly and rule with complete justice now with that though you might now say well now i am off the hook Because you were saying God was going to use me as a judge, but Jesus is the judge, so what am I doing now? Like, woo! this is good stuff, Stephen. You've really got me off. I was really concerned I was going to have to go do something and really make a difference and take a stand and maybe talk to somebody, you know. but Here's the thing. Jesus still uses people to perform his purposes. He is the judge. He is in charge, but he still uses people to perform his purposes. So he is calling you and he's calling me to point people to himself. And here's the good part. The, last, the final words of Jesus is the same promise God made to Gideon years and years ago. Remember, God said, I am calling you and I will go with you to do this work I'm calling you to do. Okay? Matthew 28, Jesus in the Great Commission makes the same promise. He says, all authority has been given to me. I am the judge, but because of that, now I'm sending you. You go out. So he says, I'm sending you, I'm calling you, go out, right? Just like he told Gideon. But then he says, go on to all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples of all the nations. And then he says, but I will be with you always. So I am calling you and I will go with you. It's the same idea that Jesus gives to us. He will be with us as he calls us to do the work of trying to say whatever's left of our culture, trying to wake up whoever is in a slumber, trying to point them, to remind them, uh, to help them them to acknowledge who Jesus is. We are extensions of grace as we are examples of grace in our culture. It's a big job. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to try to skirt the issue. It's a big job. Our culture is maybe beyond saving, maybe. We're really rocketing as far down below ground level as we can get. I mean, as fast and as far as we can go. However, while we are here, God is raising us up to try to effect some level of change, to all do our little part in our little pocket of where we live to effect some sort of change that will hopefully be a ripple effect to maybe bring about some sort of revival in our country, maybe bring a a re of God in our nation one more time. Maybe we can be that generation of judges to see the downward slope go up. God is calling us to do that, and the question is, will we say yes to that call?